All right, good evening. So today is not the first uh, day of a new year, but it is the first uh, um, of a new series that we'll be starting for the new year in a series called The Love Bug. Um, and my hope is that this series is, uh, is going to help us have a deeper grasp of God's love for us, um, that the love of his church, how to reflect his love in the lives of others. Um, hopefully this series will help us to receive the love of God in a deeper way and then also show it in a deeper way. After that, uh, after the end of this series, we're going to be going on a, a series through the book of First John. So if you want to go ahead and start um, uh, studying the first uh, book of John in your own daily, daily quiet times, I invite you to do so. So let's dive in. Uh, let's turn back the clocks uh, 19 years to the turn of the century, Y2K, uh, the distant future, the year 2000. Uh, back then, our, uh, our relationship to computers was not exactly the same as it is today. Um, we were not nearly as far in our understanding of technology, not nearly as accustomed to the dangers that it could present nor nearly as accustomed with the, uh, the ways that technology could be exploited by people with nefarious intent. Um, soon enough, the world would find out in 2000 when 50 million people, or one in every 10 uh, computers worldwide, was infected with a virus that was attached to an email. Now, even as I share this story, I understand that we're all going to scoff at this story uh, because we'll laugh and say, how could anyone be so stupid? How could anyone be so naive to fall for something like this? But the reason why we would even say that is because we have grown accustomed to a world and an internet that is a very bad place filled with very bad people wanting to do very bad things. We've grown to a point uh, where we are skeptical about absolutely everything. We have seen too many people taken advantage of, or we've been taken advantage of too many times ourselves, that we are much, much harder to fool. Uh, but that's not how it used to be. For example, uh, if your cell phone rings and you don't recognize the number, especially if it's not an area code you recognize, what is your first reaction? Let it go to voicemail. If it's someone who's important, they will leave a message. But chances are, it's probably a telemarketer. Again, if, especially if it's a zip code from outside your state, you're going to look at your phone and immediately say, Akron, Ohio. I don't know anyone in Akron, Ohio. Must be a telemarketer. No. Click. But 10 years ago, that's, that's not how it was. Uh, it didn't matter where the area code was from. You just immediately picked up your phone. 10 years ago, if you had caller ID, you would look at it and say, huh, I wonder who's calling me from Akron, Ohio. And you would pick up. Our relationship to technology back then, 10, 15, 20 years ago, was so much different than it is now. And so it is within that very naive and innocent context that this email virus spread. The virus was attached to an email with a subject line that read simply, 
I love you. The body of the email simply stated, kindly check the attached love letter coming from me. (laughs) Attached to the email was an attachment named loveletter.txt.vbs. Now once a person opened this attachment, the virus would install itself on the computer, replace all of the files on the computer, and then send a copy of itself to every person in the user's address book. And so this virus spread like wildfire. Philip Mank, a consultant at McAfee um, Internet Security, recalls, we had seen some uh, virus storms like this, but never anything on a scale this big. A computer virus until that stage had never made headline news. This is maybe one of the first times that people realized how important and indispensable the digital wired economy had become. Estimates say that this virus did about $20 billion worth of damage. From computers having to be completely repaired, hard drives having to be rebuilt, And in an effort to make sure that they were not impacted, places like the Pentagon, the CIA, British Parliament, entire governments and corporations worldwide completely shut down their email systems. And so Mank says that the damage hit millions of individuals, but it was such a huge, large-scale attack that he says a huge junk chunk of the businesses and governments worldwide were fully ground down to a halt. Investigation revealed that this virus had been written by a disgruntled former student at a computer school in the Philippines. He had submitted the code for this virus as a thesis proposal and was told, you can't do this, it's illegal and was kicked out of school. But at the time that this happened, the Philippines did not have any laws written about computer crimes. It just wasn't a thing yet. And so, even after the perpetrator was caught and admitted his guilt, he couldn't be charged with a crime in the Philippines. The virus became known as the love bug. And it held a Guinness World Record for most destructive computer virus. But what was it about the love bug that made it so effective? Was it the intricacy of the coding? Was it constructed in such a way that cybersecurity experts had to work long hours to undo it? Was it so well hidden that a person could just easily make the mistake of installing it? No. It was the first virus to ever use social engineering. It was the first virus to not simply target a computer because it targeted the user. In his article, Memories of the Love Bug Worm, cybersecurity expert Graham Cooley summarized it this way. There was nothing particularly clever about the Love Bug's code that explained why it had spread so quickly. The reason for its success was that it had tapped into a universal need, the desire to be loved. If you received the email from that cute girl in the accounts department, you'd open it. After all, who doesn't want to be desired? 
if you'd received it from your 300-pound boss with a walrus mustache, you'd even open it. After all, it's probably a funny joke, right? Even if you were in a loving, stable, happy relationship, simple curiosity would probably have meant that many of us would have found it hard to resist investigating further. And even if you didn't speak English, you would probably open it. After all, I love you are probably the most recognized words in the English language, even among those who have never met an English speaker. And so, the desire to be loved is what made the love bug so effective. Here at almost 2020, we may look at a story like this again and laugh at how naive someone must have been to open that attachment. But 50 million people made that mistake. And the reason is because every single person has the same driving desire. We need to know that we are loved. And we will do absolutely anything to gain it. We'll change ourselves however we think we have to in order to fit in. We'll wear whatever, we'll act however, we'll say whatever, look however we think is going to get us the acceptance that we crave. And if that doesn't work, then we'll turn inward. If we don't get the love from outside, we will chase the equally fleeting goal of self-love. If I can't get that love elsewhere, I'll drum it up myself. And I'll shout as loud as I can from every rooftop, Hey, I love me. Who cares what any of you think? But of course we know, whether we choose to admit it, that that is is merely an act. It's it's an audition. It's a boy crying wolf to see who will respond. It's, It's fishing. It's throwing out a line, hoping someone will bite and say, Hey, I love you too. Go you. See, the truth is, every single one of us in one way or another has opened that email attachment a thousand times in a thousand ways in our lives. The email may come to us in a conversation, a relationship, an online exchange, even just a glance. And there's this moment where we believe that another person is looking at us and saying, kindly check the attached love letter from me. And we click open because we're hoping that this time it'll be true. And so many times we've been disappointed. Now, most of us know that there are people that love us. Maybe a spouse or or kids or parents, someone. But even those loves are limited, as we will see. Even those loves don't fill the ache that is deep in our souls. There is only one love that can. But the only way that we can truly receive that love is by doing something that absolutely terrifies us. In order to be fully loved, we must be fully known. And the only one that can do that is the Lord. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Psalm 139. We'll be looking at the entire psalm. Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. 
you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So if you are taking notes, uh, we'll jump right in with point number one. God is the realization of your worst nightmare and also the answer to your greatest need. God is the realization of your worst nightmare and also the answer to your greatest need. Let me explain exactly what I mean by that. Our greatest need is to be loved, but our greatest fear is to be known. Why is that our greatest fear? Because we perceive it as being directly opposed to our greatest need. We want more than anything to be loved, but the one thing that we are afraid will keep us from being loved is if someone else knew all that there is to know about us. We're afraid that if someone somehow sees past the mask, if someone sees the real me, they're going to go running for the hills. Let's talk real here for a second. We struggle with loving ourselves because we know ourselves. So how could we not also struggle with the thought of someone else loving you? But the entirety of Psalm 139 talks about how God knows everything. That there is nothing that is hidden from him. That is the central thesis of this psalm. And here in the first five verses, David begins by highlighting this truth that God knows every detail of our lives. 
He knows when we get up. He knows when we lie down. He knows what we're thinking. He knows what we're feeling. He knows every single one of our actions, our life patterns. Not only the words that we say out loud, but also the words that we're going to say or choose not to say, but are thinking. There is nothing at all that he is unaware of. In his commentary on the Psalms, Albert Barnes points out that in verse 1 where David says, You have searched me and known me. That word for searched is a Hebrew word that refers to digging or boring deep down into the earth. It would be like what Mike probably does with those trucks. (laughs) Deep digging. It is a thorough and complete seeking out. God, from his throne in heaven, zooms all the way down into our souls. He zooms into the places that absolutely no one but him can see. He knows things about us that we don't even know. He understands us in ways that not even we do. Jesus gives a word picture in Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 31, where he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. When Jesus said this, he was speaking to a first century audience. And and to this audience, he had to use a word picture that they would have understood. This would have been the smallest thing that they could have understood. The hairs being numbered on their head. It wouldn't have made any sense if Jesus had said to them, every atom in your body is numbered. Because they would have looked at him and said, what's an atom? Wasn't he the first man? (laughs) No, so he used the smallest word picture that he could. The smallest part of their body that they could understand, which is hair. And he said, God knows even the number of the hairs on your head. And the people marveled. If he were speaking to us, God would use the things that we could understand. And the fact that he could number the hairs on our head would be amazing enough. But he could say to us, every atom, every molecule in your body is numbered. Jesus knows every strand of DNA, every proton, every neutron, up and down every quark. And that, my friends is terrifying, is it not? There is nothing we can hide from God. There is no way that we can audition. There's no way that we can put our best foot forward. There's, there's no play acting. We can fool almost anyone else. We can walk into church or walk into our jobs or walk into our homes, and we can fool the people there, but we can't fool God. Before him, we are entirely and completely exposed. A while back, I was thinking about this this passage, and and I was struck by something. Here in verse 2, David says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. This idea of discerning our thoughts from afar. I was in the car, I was thinking about this verse, and It hit me how completely and entirely God knows me. Now, the thing is, 
you guys know me, some better than others. Some have known me longer. Some of you have a decent knowledge of me, but then there's people who are even closer to me, like my family. My family has an even closer knowledge. My mom has a very close knowledge of me. She's, she raised me. She's known me my whole life. Or my best friend Matt, uh, who I've mentioned before, my accountability partner, that dude sees the good, the bad, and the ugly. He knows things about me that nobody else does. And then there's my wife. She really knows me better than any other person in the world. But even those people who are so close to me cannot read my every thought. They cannot see my every sin. They cannot see the depths of the deep, dark places in my soul that absolutely no one sees. A couple of weeks ago, I said, uh, think about this. This is a terrifying thought. If your spouse could be inside your head, literally inside your head, reading every thought that you think, that would be terrible. (laughs) I thought about the fact that if people, if anyone could see that deeply into my heart, they would probably feel very differently about me. If you could see all the way into the rabbit hole, so to speak, you probably wouldn't even want to be my friend, much less a part of the same church. You'd be appalled. And on the flip side, if I could see that deeply into your heart, I would probably look at you and say, I don't want you here either. (laughs) We've all seen each other's best, but we haven't seen each other's worst. But God has. God does. We are totally, completely known by Him. There is nothing hidden. Even those things that we are so ashamed of that we can hardly admit to ourselves, God knows it even more completely than we do. And yet... Armed with that knowledge, he still loves us. And not just a little bit, completely. And if that reality doesn't hit you hard, you are not paying attention. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Did you catch that? Paul says, maybe, maybe someone might think about dying for a good person. If you are a genuine, bona fide, hero-level, goody-good person, maybe someone might think about giving their lives for you. But Jesus didn't die for strong people or good people. It says that God acted while we were still weak. That God died for the ungodly. That while we were yet sinners, when we were at our worst, when there was nothing in us that looked anything like him, at that point, Christ died for us. 
And that, my friends, is love. We are entirely exposed before him, but God doesn't run for the hills. God rushes to embrace us. We are the ones who want to run because that depth of love is something that that is at the same time so appealing and yet so terrifying. That depth of love makes us simultaneously want to dance in the open and also hide under a rock. This is point number two. God's love pursues us in the places that we hide. Here in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 11, David says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. See, one of the hardest things that we can possibly be is vulnerable. Because in opening yourself up to being vulnerable, you are opening yourself up to being hurt. Now, I'm going to assume that every single person here or listening online has at some point been hurt by someone else rejected them. After putting themselves out there and being pushed away. Every one of us. And so we've learned in life to protect ourselves. We've learned to guard our hearts, otherwise we'll end up getting hurt. And we've become so conditioned to being let down that we've become masters at hiding. We're trained to put our best foot forward. So every piece of our lives becomes a carefully crafted public image. We put a perfect Instagram filter on everything. So that what people see of us is an airbrushed online image. We even download apps on our phones to airbrush the blemishes out of our pictures real time. We carefully craft everything about our outward appearance because we are so afraid that people will see our flaws. And we'll come to church on Sundays and when people ask us how we're doing, our immediate response is, Oh, I'm fine. I'm blessed. I'm better than I deserve, even if we're not doing fine at all. Because the last thing we want is for people to see us struggling. God forbid that the people in church know that we actually struggle with sin, insecurity, or doubt. We have to be perfect little Christians, or else we'll be judged. And so when we're faced with the thought of being completely known, what is our first instinct? It's to hide in shame. And so David, in these five verses, talks about that instinct. In verse 7, he talks about fleeing from God's presence. In verse 11, he talks about trying to hide in the darkness. And he says, surely the darkness will cover me. Let's not forget what preceded these verses. The affirmation that God knows absolutely everything about us. And the first response to that knowledge is for us to run. Because everything that we have learned about the world is that if anyone knows us completely, they're going to run for the hills. So we preemptively run for the hills ourselves. But these verses tell us that there is nowhere to go to hide from God's love. That he pursues us in his love. 
He is omnipresent, which makes hide and seek impossible. It's like when I used to play hide and seek with my kids when they were really little and they would just stick their head under something with their entire body sticking out. And just because they couldn't see me, they thought I couldn't see them. That's what it's like trying to hide from God. That's why David says, even the darkness isn't dark to you. I might as well be under a spotlight because anywhere I run, you see me and I'm there. Don't worry, it's going to go all the way. (laughs) But my friends, this is a beautiful truth. God is not chasing us down to chastise us. He's not pursuing us to lay the hammer down. He is gently but passionately meeting us in every place that we hide and saying to us, you don't have to hide from me. I already know everything that there is in your heart and I still love you completely. We never have to worry about being found out. He already knows. And he still loves. Whenever we sin, our first temptation is to hide from God. It's the same thing that Adam and Eve did. They hid themselves in the bushes, afraid of what God would do if he found them. We think, all right, now I've done it. Now I've messed up. God will not feel the same way about me anymore. And yet, Scripture tells us that God knew about that sin before we even ever committed it. And again, that incredible truth that we learn in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. See, God knows every sin I am ever going to commit for the rest of my life. If I live another 50 years and I commit another million sins over those 50 years, I am never going to reach a point where I commit any kind of sin and God goes, all right, now you've done it. You've reached the limit. We're done. He's never going to see me sin and say, wow, dude, if I knew you were going to do that, I don't think I would have saved you in the first place. I had no idea you were going to go this far. If I'd have known about this, maybe I wouldn't have given my son for you. God already knows. God already sees, and he has already put every single one of those sins that I am yet to commit on the cross. Colossians chapter 2, Paul puts it like this. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's amazing. There's no reason to hide because he already has a complete, exhaustive list of every sin, every thought, every feeling, every secret, shameful act, every motivation. He knows every sin, even the ones that you don't even know that you have committed. Even the ones that you haven't committed yet. And the moment that we trust Christ to be our Savior, all of those sins are paid. The debt is already paid. We can't go any further into debt because he's already paid it. 
And so when God pursues us, when we hide, it's to remind us that we have no need to hide in the first place. We are completely known, completely loved, and completely forgiven. We're reminded, reminded that God will love us forever, that he's loved us from the very beginning. My friends, we do not have to be afraid of opening that email attachment that comes from God. He has sent us this living word through the prophets, through the disciples, and ultimately through his son. And he is saying to us, kindly check the attached love letter coming from me. We can rest assured that when we open it, we will not find rejection. We will find perfect, all-consuming love. Furthermore, we don't, we don't just find a love that finds us in order to love us. It's a love that has loved us from the very beginning. Point number three is this. God's creative process is a demonstration of his love. Verses 13 through 16, David says this. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Think about nature for a moment. Not just here on earth, but the expanses of the universe, all of space. God in Genesis, spoke ten words, and it was there. Everything in creation, the birds, the trees, the ocean, the clouds, the mountains, every beautiful, amazing thing in this blue planet and far beyond. And I want you to consider this. All of that came into being as a result of God speaking. Except... One thing, us. We are the only thing in creation that God made with his hands. For the first five days of creation, God was on his throne in heaven speaking things into existence. Saying things like, let there be and there was. Looking down at each thing and saying, this is good. But then on day six, God stepped off his throne. He got down on his hands and knees onto the perfect earth that he had just created. And he took dust in his hands. And with his hands, he sculpted. He shaped. He formed. These verses say he knitted. Intricately wove. Everything else was instantaneously created. Just like that. He spoke and there it was. But with us... He took time. He took time to craft us, to mold us. And then, if that was not intimate enough, once it was finished, he knelt down and breathed life into us. Mankind is his masterpiece. And David says that just as God fashioned and formed Adam and Eve, he has done the same for us. David doesn't just credit a mere biological process, although a biological process is 
present as God designed it to be. But in David's words, he too was formed by God in his mother's womb. We, every one of us, has been crafted by God, and that should cause us to see ourselves differently. We are not mistakes. We're not supposed to be something or someone else. We are each part of God's beautifully crafted creation, and our value and our worth doesn't come from what we accomplish. It doesn't come from what we look like, what we achieve, or fill in the blank with anything else. Our value and our worth and our satisfaction come from the fact that we are fearfully and wonderfully made in his own image. We are not cookie-cutter humanity either. Every single one of us is a custom work of art, infinitely valuable, perfectly unique. We are wildly different because God was showing off not only his love, but also his creativity. But God's not finished with us once he creates us. That's why David says in verse 16, In your book was written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Here we find that God takes the same level of care, not just in forming us, but in forming every day of our lives. Far from being a God who is distant, God is putting together an intricate screenplay where every detail of our lives is filled with purpose and meaning. He has already written a beautiful story of who we are and what we're going to be and what we're going to do, while at the same time somehow giving us free will. And that is hard to wrap our minds around, but it is true. Literally everything is infused with purpose. He has the ability to do these things because he's powerful. He knows how to perfectly do all these things because of his wisdom. But the reason why he does all of these things is because of his love. Point number four, we are constantly on his mind. Verses 17 through 18, he says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. I was struck by something else as I was meditating on this passage, something that, that correlates to another place in the Psalms. In Psalm 40, verses 4 through 5, David says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. When I read that, it hit me that I spend so much time obsessing about certain things in this life, whether it be sinful pursuits, the things that my dark heart fixates upon. I can spend all day thinking about those things, but never once has an idol ever returned the favor. Never once has anything that I have given my thoughts toward ever given a thought toward me. I can spend my whole life thinking I would just be happy if only I had fill in the blank. But that fantasy is something that only I think about. You can think about a future, but a future is not thinking about you. 
You can think of a goal, but a goal is not thinking about you. You can think about the idea of a relationship, but that idea is not thinking about you. But God is. He's constantly thinking about us, constantly considering us, constantly loving us. And, and I put so much of my energy putting my thoughts toward things that have no thoughts toward me. Now, you might say, well, what about your wife? She thinks about you, right? And yes, that is true. She does think about me. Somewhere between puppies and manicures and Disney Magic Kingdom, there's a thought every so often about little old me. But even her thoughts, though usually filled with love, pale in comparison to the thoughts of God toward me. To know that I am on his mind is humbling. It is why David asked the question in Psalm 8, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. It is amazing that God has the entire universe at his fingertips, and yet he is still mindful of us. Um, I don't have time in this sermon to cover uh, the verses that come next in uh, verses 19 through 22. Um, it would seem as we're reading through this psalm that these verses take us on a wild left turn. Uh, they seem out of place. Um, I'm not going to address those here. Uh, there was a sermon that I preached last year in April uh, in which I did. Um, and if you went back and listened to that sermon, you would come back to this sermon and think to yourself, wow, did I just listen to the same sermon? And yes, admittedly, part of it is true. I plagiarize my own work all the time. Uh, I need a ruling. Teacher, is that plagiarism? Good. All right. I'm not guilty of plagiarism. I steal from myself from my previous work. I'm not smart enough to come up with new things all the time. Um, so we'll, we'll skip over verses 19 through 22 and uh, finish the psalm with the last point. God's love leads us to forward the love bug. Um, one of the reasons why the love bug was so widespread was because it programmed itself to be forwarded to every contact in a person's address book. Once a person's computer had been infected with the love bug, every person that they were connected to would be exposed to it as well. And that is exactly what God intends to do through us. We know that God knows us fully and loves us fully. And that should lead us to a place where we ask him to use us fully. It should lead us to a place of submission and obedience because he is exactly the kind of God that we want to follow. Verses 19, uh, I'm sorry, 23 through 24 where he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. These verses provide a contrast to verses 7 through 12, where David is talking about his instinct to run away from God. In these last verses, filled with understanding of God's love, David says, I don't want to run away from you. I, I want to follow you. Show me how. 
And he opens himself up to God's surgery, asking him to remove these grievous ways. He says, I'll make myself open to you. Now mold me and shape me to be more like you. Show me how to follow you obediently. That is where the love of God should lead us. To a place where we no longer run and hide, but to a place where we give him everything. Where we allow him into every corner of our souls, asking him to purify it. Where, where we invite him to fill us with his love so that we might share that love with everyone else. Uh, there'll be an entire sermon on that later on in the series, but let this serve as, as an introduction. When we are fully known and fully loved, it is at that point that we are capable of fully loving others. It's at that point that we can become conduits for perfect love. In 1 John 3, John says, we love because God first loved us. That if he loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then he says, in doing so, God's love is made complete in us. That doesn't mean that God's love is lacking in any way or, or that we are needed for something to add to his love. What it means is that God's perfect mission is fulfilled when we follow his design. When we do what we were created to do. He created us to experience the fullness of his love and to have his love pouring out of us to others. That's why we end every service with the same mission statement. The mission starts after church. Because if you're impacted by the gospel here, you'll be a messenger for it out there. So, what will you do? Will you open yourself completely to his love? After all, there's no use hiding anyway. Will you allow it to fill every corner of your soul and then spread it to every person in your address book? Remember, the, the love bug uh, computer virus that infected 50 million people or one in every 10 computers worldwide started in a suburb in Manila in the Philippines by one disgruntled student. My prayer is that through a tiny little church plant in South Bend, Indiana, millions can be exposed to the love of the Father and that this bug would spread across the world. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love, for your grace. Thank you, Lord, that you know us completely and yet still love us just the same. God, I pray that you would help us to receive that love to experience that love in fullness and then, Lord, to share it with everyone else. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.